0: From the very beginning, God's purpose has always been to bring redemption to the world. He he is a redeeming God. That's His nature. That's His character. Immediately after the fall of mankind into sin in Genesis, God promised that the seed of the woman, that is, one who would be born of a woman, that that seed, that person would one day crush the head of the serpent satan the plan of redemption begins to unfold in the garden the next major step in redemption was when god chose abraham and promised to make of his descendants a great nation and through that nation god's blessing would come to the nations of the world that was god's purpose for The nation of Israel. Israel was called into existence for a redemptive purpose. And the nation of Israel was to be a light to the other nations. But, and we have seen this so clearly as we've gone through the study of Israel's history in Al's class in adult Sunday school, we've seen so clearly that Israel failed miserably in their role as God's people in the world. And the name of God and the salvation of God was all but unknown to the nations. None of this was a surprise to God. And according to His eternal purpose and plan, God embarked upon a new program to bring redemption and salvation to the world. And He did this through the sending of His own Son. And the writer Luke has written a two-volume work on the story of God's plan and work for the redemption of the world. We call those books, that two-volume work of Luke, we call it the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And we have now completed a -a three-and-a-half-year study of these two books. And so today, I want to step back and try to look at the bigger picture to try to show the theme that develops through Luke and then into Acts, showing again how God was working to bring his salvation and redemption to the world. So today, we want to try to do that summary of Luke and Acts, God's redemption of the world. Well, as we always do, let's begin with context. But here, I'm using context in a different way, uh, a different context for the context, I should say. And what I mean here is, what was the mindset of the Jewish nation at what came to be the time of Jesus, when Jesus was born and lived? Now, keep in mind that God had been silent For 400 years, there had been no prophetic voice. There had been no prophet of God. And Israel was now chafing under the subjection of the Gentile power of Rome. And deeply rooted in the heart of the Jewish people was, first of all, the hope for a king. The prophets had spoken of a time when God would raise up a descendant of David to rule as a righteous king. And as an example of this, we see Jeremiah 23.15. The prophet says, Behold, the days are coming. And the prophet, as he, it's as if he looks down through the corridor of history and he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, meaning a descendant of David, And he will reign as king, and act wisely, and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. So they had this hope that one day God would send someone, a descendant of David, and this one came to be called the Messiah. The Anointed One. That's what the word Messiah means. Anointed. The Anointed One. So so embedded in the heart of the Jewish people was this hope that one day God would send the Messiah, the Deliverer, to, to restore Israel. But also embedded in their hearts was not only the hope for a king, but growing out of this was the hope for a kingdom. The prophets also spoke of the time when God would act on behalf of Israel He would break the yoke of Gentile Gentile dominion and exalt Israel as preeminent among all of the nations of the world. As an example of this, we might go to Daniel in chapter 2. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. The God of heaven is going to establish a kingdom that will last forever, it will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. In other words, no one is going to overtake that kingdom. And it will crush and put an end to all of the other kingdoms. But it itself will endure forever. And then in Daniel 7, we see this. Then the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the saints of the people of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. This was the hope of Israel based on the prophets that one day God would act and that day finally came. Now, as we begin, I want to first of all give a very simple overview to understand the theme of Luke, and then the theme of Acts. We can say that in the Gospel of Luke, redemption was provided. Here we see how God initiated and carried out the provision for the redemption of the world through the coming and through the death and resurrection of His Son. Luke. Redemption provided. But that's not the end of the story. God is not through working. His work continues what we see unfolding and recorded in the book of Acts. We have redemption proclaimed. You see, in Acts we see how God is working and it's that invisible hand of God behind everything that takes place in Acts working so that the provision of redemption Salvation by faith in Jesus Christ is taken and proclaimed to the world. And so we see Luke and Acts this way. Luke, redemption provided. Acts, redemption proclaimed. All right. We want to look at both of these books. I want to try to just develop this theme as we go through both of them. Okay. Let's look first at the Gospel of Luke, redemption provided. And this really breaks down into four parts, his birth and baptism, and then his early ministry, and then his later ministry, and then the consummation with his death and resurrection. Four parts in the Gospel of Luke. Just try to remember that. Birth and baptism, early ministry, later ministry, death and resurrection. Okay? That's how we're going to look at it today. Let's look, first of all, at his birth and baptism. And what, is, what do we learn here? What do we see here as it relates to this theme of God providing redemption? Well, as I said before, the fulfillment of the words of the prophets finally came, and the day came for God to act and bring redemption. Now, do you remember what the very first action of God was in this story of redemption. What was the very first action that God took? He was sending the angel to Zacharias okay, to announce to him that he and his wife Elizabeth would give birth in their aged years to the one who would be the forerunner, John the Baptist. So, the events in this section of the Gospel of Luke of the events around Jesus' birth include that angelic announcement to Zacharias that they were going to give birth to John, who would be the forerunner. And then we have the angel's announcement to Mary that she would give birth to one, and his name will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Okay? And so the announcement to Mary. And then we have the story of the actual birth in Bethlehem and then we have the angelic announcement to the shepherds announcing the birth that today in the city of David a savior has been born okay we have these events now all of these events show what they show that Jesus birth was planned and orchestrated by god it was all god's doing that brought this birth to take place it was planned and god brought all these events together to make it happen it was god's doing that's what we clearly see his birth was initiated and carried out as the plan of god if anyone were to ask well you say jesus is the messiah well what do we know about his birth that's what we know about his birth that it was announced by angels, and, 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 and to, the forerunner was announced, and the angel came to Mary, and the uh, angels announced his very birth on that night. It was all supernaturally surrounded, giving evidence that it was God that was initiating this plan. And then, even more significantly, when, when Jesus as a baby was taken into the temple, and the aged Simeon says these words over him Look at the, follow along these words Luke 2 now Lord this is when Jesus was taken into the temple as a baby Okay, there's this elderly man there that had been told that he would not die until he sees the Lord's anointed now Lord you can let your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes as he looks upon the baby Jesus He says, My eyes have now seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. He will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and he will be the glory of your people Israel. This is further confirmation from this godly man that everyone respected, that everyone knew in Jerusalem. And he pronounces these words that Jesus was indeed born as God's Messiah and God's Savior. And then we have Jesus' baptism. And, and, and you remember the story of the baptism, how when He is baptized, the, the Spirit of God descends from heaven in some visible form. It says, like a dove, but I, I don't think that means it took the form of a bird, but it, but it came down as a bird, as a dove might be in flight. And the Spirit of God visibly descends on him. And then there is the voice of the Father attending that event. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What's the significance of this? This is a fulfillment of Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1, the prophet says, Behold my servant. And he's speaking again, looking into the future of the one that would come one day. He says, Behold my servant whom I I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. The same expression, I am well pleased. I have put my Spirit upon him. And that's the significance of the visible manifestation of the Spirit coming to rest upon Jesus. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so the the baptism is really the again another event showing that Jesus is indeed the one that God has sent forth to be the one to bring redemption. And so the birth stories and the baptism show that Jesus was born as part of the plan and purpose of God. God was orchestrating all of this. It was God that was initiating this plan to bring redemption to the world. If one were to ask if Jesus really were really was the Messiah, these birth stories and his baptism show clearly that his birth came about by the action of God. And he has the Spirit of God and approval of God confirmed at his baptism. All right, so now let's move on to his early ministry. Okay? Birth and baptism. Next is early ministry. And this is basically chapters 4 through 9. Now, in this section, early in Jesus' ministry, the primary focus of His ministry is what? Miracles. The primary focus of His early ministry is miracles. Why? Because He must, by His miracles convince the people that he indeed has been sent from god as the messiah and so in this first part of his ministry he concentrates on convincing the people of who he is that's what he must do and so he's providing the convincing evidence so so what do we find in these early chapters well, he cast out the demon of a man in the synagogue. He healed Peter's mother-in-law, and from that multitudes came and he healed all of them. He caused the miraculous catch of fish, showing his authority over nature. He healed the man of leprosy which had never been done in all of Israel's history. He healed the paralytic, remember the guy that came down through the roof because there was such a crowd around him, and then he said to him, "What? Your sins are forgiven." which was a claim of deity to be able to forgive sin. He raised the dead, the widow's son, in the village of Nain. He showed authority again over nature when He calmed the storm. He demonstrated authority over Satan as He cast out the multitude of deacons. (laughs) Oh my... (laughs) I apologize to all the deacons here. (laughs) That was not Freudian, trust me. I don't think the deacons are (laughs) demon-possessed. I love our deacons. Oh, my. (laughs) He cast out a multitude of demons (laughs) from the demon-possessed man. And then he fed the 5,000 and did many, many more miracles as well that are recorded even in those chapters 4 through (coughs) 9. Nothing I said about this message will ever be remembered except that. All right, let's get serious now. (laughs) All right having done all of this, all of this evidence of of who He is, really, it it, it builds to a climax. In Luke chapter 9, after, through all these chapters, we, we, we have this story of all the things that Jesus had been doing, demonstrating His person. It builds to a climax. In Luke chapter 9, when Jesus asked the disciples, and it came about while He was praying alone, the disciples were with Him, and He questioned them, saying, Who do the multitudes say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. But others say you're one of the prophets of old that is risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? He looks right at the disciples. Okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered as a spokesman for the disciples and said, You're the Christ of God. You're the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. This is the response that Jesus had desired. This was the purpose of all that He had been doing, to bring them to that point where they were convinced and believed that indeed He was the Messiah of God. You are the Christ. And they now are convinced He is indeed the Messiah. And that's the purpose of the early ministry of Jesus for the disciples. And for the reader as well, as we read Luke's account, either the original readers or we read it today, Jesus is giving clear and abundant convincing evidence of who he is. Now, when this is accomplished, when they come to this dramatic confession, you are the Christ, we're convinced, we believe it, there is an immediate change of focus in his ministry. Okay? And we look at Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And it came about when the days were approaching for His ascension that He resolutely set His face to go to Jerusalem. Having now convinced the disciples of who He is, He then sets about to go to Jerusalem and fulfill the purpose for which He had come. And that is to die on the cross, rise from the dead, to provide redemption. And so now we come to the, the later part of His ministry. Birth and baptism. Early part, convincing evidence, miracles. Now we come to the later part of His, his ministry. And that is teaching and preparation in chapters 10 through 19 as he embarks upon and continues to go to Jerusalem for the purpose for which he came, and that is to die, we see in this section an emphasis upon his teaching, that he is teaching and preparing his disciples so they will be able to carry on the work after he has completed his work and goes back to the Father. And so what do we see in this section? Well, we see that he sends out the seventy. To, to, to train them and prepare them. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan teaching that our neighbor is anyone in need. He gives instruction on prayer. He taught about wealth and the rich fool who put all his trust in his riches. And then he taught about true riches of laying up treasures in heaven. In several places in, throughout this section, he taught about his second coming when he will return in power and glory and encouraged his followers to be faithful and to be ready. He taught about what it really means to be a disciple, to love Him more than family, to take up one's cross and die to one's own agenda, and to give freely of one's possessions. He taught about the unfathomable grace of God in the stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. That God is a seeking God and seeks us to come home to Him no matter where we've been or how long we've been gone. That's the nature of God. He taught us to use our earthly wealth for eternal purposes so that when we get to heaven there will be there, there will be those there to welcome us home. And He taught about forgiving seven times a day. And He taught about gratitude as the one leper of the ten, only one of them that was healed came back to give thanks. And so in this latter part of Jesus' ministry, he was focused upon his disciples and preparing them to carry out his work after he returns to the Father. And then we come to the consummation. Birth and baptism, early ministry, convincing evidence, later ministry, teaching and preparation. Now we come to the consummation, which is the death and resurrection. And these chapters constitute the final week of Jesus' life. And it is, it is this event for which he had come. And really, there are, there are five aspects, five parts of this week. First, during this week, he has confrontation with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He is in the temple each day, and they challenge him each day. And in these confrontations, we see every time how Jesus emerges superior and silences their opposition. Secondly, we see Jesus with the disciples preparing them for His death, which they don't understand yet. They get the Messiah part, but they don't understand this deal about His death. And He institutes the memorial of the Lord's Supper. And in all of this, we see His clear awareness of His coming death. And it is this purpose that we see that he knows for which he had come he was point it's not like it just happened but he knows this is why he came and he instituted that great memorial so that we might ever be reminded about his death for us and then we see him in in the garden Luke 22 saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but thine be done. Again, this shows us clearly that Jesus was fully aware of what he was doing. It didn't ha- again, it didn't happen by accident. It wasn't something that was forced on him that he's trying to make the best out of. It was clearly his plan. And he's praying to the Father, I know I have to do this. If there's any other way, that would be great. But if not, I will do it. I will go forth with this plan. And what is that plan? It is for him to take the sins of the world upon himself and endure the awful wrath of God for the sins of the entire world. If there's any other way, let this cup pass. But if not, I'll do it. And then we see, thirdly, his arrest and trials. He had the Jewish trials before the Sanhedrin, the illegal one at night, and then they tried to make it legal in the morning. Then he, before, then he went before Pilate, and then to Herod, and then back to Pilate. And through all of this, we see his calm peace and acceptance, and we see his innocence to show that he was not put to death for anything that he had done He was put to death, being innocent, but as part of the plan of God. We see this in Luke 23. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I find no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. His innocence clearly seen and then finally we have his death and resurrection where we see that he was clearly put to death by Roman crucifixion and it's important to understand that there is no question that he died it was Roman crucifixion and he was clearly put to death and yet he arose and was alive again and the events are conclusive his death and his resurrection and not subject to any other conclusion or interpretation other than death and resurrection. And then it begins to become clear how all of this was part of the plan of God as he spoke to the disciples on the evening of the day of the resurrection, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them things concerning himself in the scriptures, concerning his death and his resurrection. And then we have his, the commission, where he commissions his disciples and followers to take the message of redemption that he had now accomplished in his death, to take that message to the world. Luke 24, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and rise again from the third day, thus it is written, consistent with the Old Testament, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's His commission. And He promises that the Spirit of God will come upon them, that will empower them and enable them to be the witnesses that He has called them to be. So, let's review. Redemption provided the Gospel of Luke. The events of his birth show clearly that God had initiated his birth and his coming. It was the fulfillment of the promises for the Messiah and the kingdom. In his early ministry, he provided an abundance of convincing evidence of who he is, that he indeed is the Messiah of God, the one who has come from God. In his later ministry, he focused on teaching and preparing his disciples to carry on his work after he is gone. And in his death and resurrection, he accomplishes, That purpose for which God had sent him, for which God orchestrated this whole thing, and for which he had come, and that is to provide for the forgiveness of sins and offer eternal life to all who believe in him. So up to this point, God has provided redemption. And now God continues His work to orchestrate taking that message of redemption to the world. And now we come to the book of Acts. Redemption is provided in Luke, and now redemption is proclaimed in the book of Acts. It begins with the commission and empowerment. And so Acts begins with Jesus during His 40-day period after His resurrection and before His ascension, Jesus was on earth for 40 days. And Jesus reiterates His commission to His disciples. that What He had said in Luke 24, He now is going to reiterate to them again, this is what they must do, and they will receive the Spirit of God, which will enable them to do it. And this is what He says in Acts 1:8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's basically what He said in Luke 24. And you shall be My witnesses both, in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Notice, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And it is this very pattern that we see unfolded in the book of Acts. Going from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then to the nations of the earth. So Jesus then ascends into heaven, and in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, The Holy Spirit is indeed poured out to empower the church to carry out the mission which it had now been given. And so God is working. You see, God not only provided redemption, but He is now working to empower the church so that the message can be taken and proclaimed to the world. All right, so we have then in Acts proclamation in Jerusalem and then proclamation in Judea and Samaria and then proclamation to the nations and then on to Rome. Those are the parts of the book of Acts that we're going to look at. So we look in Jerusalem first in chapters 3 through 7. On the day of Pentecost, which, in which the Holy Spirit was poured out, given to us in Acts chapter 2, we, we find out that 3,000 believe the message. 3,000 believe that day and are saved. And later we're told, just a chapter or two later, that the number has increased to 5,000. And then after that, we are told that multitudes were being continually added to their number. Multitudes added to the number of 5,000. And so what do we see here? Jerusalem was indeed hearing the message. Jerusalem, you will be my witnesses. Where? Beginning in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was hearing the message. Now there's opposition during this time. that The apostles were repeatedly arrested. They were even flogged. Stephen was stoned to death. And yet the message could not Be stopped because God was bringing about His plan for redemption. Jerusalem was hearing the message. Well, from there it goes into Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 through 12. You know, sometimes it's hard to know when something happens. This might depend a little bit on your theological persuasion or perspective but sometimes it's hard to know when something happens if God designed it or if God allowed it and then uses it. Okay? Well, such is the case with the persecution of the church. We read in Acts chapter 8, And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria where was the gospel to be taken Jerusalem Judea and Samaria and now the church is forced out of Jerusalem into that next circle where the commission had been given into Judea and Samaria verse 4 therefore those who had been scattered What did they do when they were scattered from Jerusalem? And they went into Judea and Samaria. They went about preaching the Word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. So persecution in Jerusalem. Believers are forced to leave to go to other parts of the country and as they go they preach the Gospel. Empowered by the Spirit of God. We have Philip in Samaria. We have Philip in Gaza. But in this section, during this time that the gospel is now going to Judea and Samaria, we see the sovereign hand of God at work preparing to take the message farther than Judea and Samaria, but to take the message to the nations. And what do we see God doing at this time that the message is being proclaimed to Judea and Samaria? He calls Saul the great persecutor of the church, he calls him to be his servant and who will become his messenger to the Gentiles. It will be several years yet before Saul, then Paul, will actually go out to the nations, but God is preparing him now. And on that road to Damascus, God intervenes into his life and Paul becomes a believer. God's beginning to prepare him now for that ministry. And another thing we see God doing during this time as the Gospel is being preached in Judea and Samaria, another thing we see God clearly doing is preparing the predominantly uh, Jewish church and their bias against Gentiles to prepare the Jewish church receive Gentiles into fellowship and to take the gospel to the Gentiles and so God orchestrates this amazing event with Peter to go to the house of Cornelius to share the gospel with him. Remember how this started? You know, Cornelius had a vision. He's supposed to send someone to see Peter. And then Peter has a vision when he's up on the roof of this sheet coming down with all kinds of unclean animals on it and says, you're to eat these things, which means that there's not to be the distinction between Jews and Gentiles any longer. And so that vi- the vision finishes, and then the messengers show up from uh, Cornelius. And Peter says, oh wow, God is really doing something here. I've got to go with Him. And so he goes back to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius, who is a Gentile and he preaches the gospel to them and the spirit is poured out on the household of Cornelius and all those present showing that God is now saving the Gentiles and this was what God was doing to prepare the hearts of the Jewish people so they would be inclined therefore and motivated therefore to take the message of redemption to the Gentiles God is opening the door to the Gentiles so now At the end of chapter 12, the gospel has gone to Jerusalem. The gospel has gone to Judea and Samaria and God is preparing to take it to the Gentile nations. And then we have the proclamation to the nations in chapters uh, 13 through 21. God's call of Paul and His preparation of Paul now comes to fruition as God directs the church to send out Paul or Saul and Barnabas to the nations. Acts 13.2 While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Notice for the work to which I have called them. God's doing this. God is orchestrating these events to get the message of redemption to the nations. And he has saved Paul and now he has prepared him and now he is directing the church to send them out to this work. which he has been called and so the gospel now goes to the Gentile nations and this is what we saw in chapters 13 through 21 let's go to the map once again okay this is the first journey they were up in Antioch and they came down here to Cyprus and so on and went in this area and then returned that's the first journey chapters 13 and 14 Uh, let's move on this is the second journey here okay And uh, they went back up this way and all along here. You see how the gospel is now expanding. The first journey was right over here. But now they're going here. All now into Europe, Eastern Europe, over here. Okay? And then they come back and let's go to the third journey. And here it is again in in that same area, going back to strengthen, preach the gospel again, and strengthen the disciples. Okay? And so the gospel has now gone. To the nations. But there's one more thing. And that's the proclamation in Rome in chapters 22 to 28. One leg yet remains in the commission in Acts. It's gone to Jerusalem. Gone to Judea and Samaria. It's gone to the nations yet it says to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, the word remotest we kind of think as a tiny island, you know, somewhere off by itself that no one's ever heard of. That's not what the word remote means here. It means the ends of the earth. Okay? And for the Jews, that would be Rome as the faraway hub of Gentile civilization. And in these final chapters we see how God providentially again is working to direct the Gospel to Rome through the Apostle Paul. Now we know that a church had already in existence there, but when Paul goes there, it's significant because it gives a unique opportunity for proclamation that apparently the church did not have. And again... God uses the adverse circumstances of Paul to get the message there. We have his arrest. Remember, he's in the temple and Jews turned against him and tried to kill him. And the Romans intervened. Then he had a trial before the Sanhedrin. Then he was brought before Felix and Caesarea. And then he was brought before Festus after two years. And then Agrippa visited and he gave a defense before Agrippa. And what is the conclusion of this? Of all these trials, Acts 23... I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but no accusation deserving death or punishment. And then in Acts 26, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. Paul is shown to be innocent of any crime. So he's not arrested because he had done something wrong, but God was using all of this to get Paul to Rome and in a position where he could proclaim the gospel to the leaders and finally, we are told that he would stand before the emperor himself and testify of what God was doing. then the book of Acts concludes this way. Chapter 28. We saw this last week. And Paul is in Rome under custody, under house arrest, and he stayed full two years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. God had so worked that the gospel had now spread in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, then to the nations, and now to Rome, the very epicenter of Gentile power. And there is Paul, able to preach the gospel unhindered and with openness gospel is now strategically positioned to go further so this is God's redemption of the world redemption provided redemption proclaimed and this is the message that was proclaimed it's summarized in the Lord's commission to Paul in Acts 26 God says to Paul I will deliver you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And this will be your message, Paul. To open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. God has provided redemption in the death of Jesus Christ. The message of salvation by faith in Christ began with His tiny band of followers. And through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the gospel was taken to the then known world. But that commission that was given was not just to them, not just to the disciples. It was to the church, the church of all ages, of all times, church of today, may we be faithful as individuals and as a church to take our place in the great work that God is still doing to proclaim the message of redemption to the world. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, for Your Word that You've given to us and as we are privileged to see the great work of redemption that You are doing. And we can only bow our hearts before You and lift up our words in gratitude and thanksgiving for all that You have done for us through, through Jesus Christ. And that we are here because You have provided redemption And we are here because someone has proclaimed that redemption to us. And we thank you and praise you. Lord, we pray that we as a church, as individuals, will be faithful to proclaim that message as well. The message of redemption, the forgiveness of sin, and eternal life found in Jesus Christ alone. May we be faithful to proclaim that message. We pray in His name. Amen.